a sermon, Breaking Death. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that we can be gathered in this house of worship on this very special Sabbath that corresponds to the actual resurrection, death, and resurrection weekend of Jesus. As we gather to reflect on this event, may the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus move in our hearts with more power. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Unfortunately, there'll be some coughing and sputtering up here. I caught a cold at the beginning of last week, <coughs> and it's, it's uh, left its mark. What does the resurrection mean to you? And by the way, I love having you folks join us virtually. Thank you for being here. I'm going to get some feedback from the audience, and I will restate it so that you don't miss a word online. You may be able to pick up some from the crowd, but I'll, I'll make sure that you hear what's going on. What does the resurrection mean to you? Did you say love? Life. Yes. Very good. Hope. Anyone else? What does the resurrection mean to you? Security. Certainty. Someone said eternal life? Promise of eternal life. Yeah. You said what? Evidence. Evidence. Coming again. Anyone else? What was that? Reunion. Reunion. Yeah, very good. Joy. Joy. Yes. Yes. I'm not reflecting today on um, the resurrection and the hope of resurrection so much, but with the funeral that we just came from in in. Uh, North Carolina, and with saying goodbye to Kathy. Sorry, Karen. My apologies to Karen. And some other goodbyes this year, Dr. Kruger among them. That's not my focus this morning, but that is such an anchor of hope. That will, is inevitably touched on when we talk about resurrection. You can't miss the fact that Jesus' resurrection is inseparable from our own hope and assurance of resurrection. And reunion, which was a great comment that is reunion, not just resurrection, but reunion. We're going to begin the story all the way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely, what do you have there? Die. So, perfect creation. God gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to choose between him and evil, <clears throat> the tree, and they ate the fruit. Chapter 3 records for us that tragic moment when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Verse 7 of chapter 3 in Genesis says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
So we find ourselves in this Garden of Eden. The fruit's been eaten, which means what comes on the human race, the human family? When they ate, they would suffer guilt, experience guilt, and ultimately face what? Death. Paul in Romans 5 notes that death reigned. Does anybody know how long death reigned? Romans 5.14, you can find it if you get there before someone else shouts it out. Yes, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, death reigned. So that means the apparent monopoly that Lucifer, that Satan had achieved by bringing death was unchallenged (coughs) from Adam until Moses. Now, we do have an instance of someone who skipped death, which was Enoch, walked with God, and God took him. See, I brought this up here because I need it today. Now, we know that Moses was resurrected for three reasons. This text is helpful. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. So we know that something in around Moses' time changes the reign of death. It's a monopoly. Lucifer, Satan thinks that he's got it, but then it's broken. Jude chapter, well, chapter 1, since there's only one chapter. Go with me to Jude. And uh, we're going to drop into Jude. About midway through Jude, we come to this verse in verse 9. Jude 9. Second reason, we know that Moses was resurrected. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. Interesting. There's controversy. Why do you think there's controversy over the body of Moses? Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit, which meant they had rebelled against God, which means that death is coming. Death reigns from Adam. It's been undisputed, apparently. So so why the dispute? If God can restore Moses to life, what are the implications for Satan's monopoly? That's a pretty serious threat, isn't it? Okay, you can take someone living, right? Moses walked with God and God took him. So, you know, maybe he, maybe he sort of says, okay, there's exceptions to this. But once they're dead, I've got them. And so when, when Moses is going to be resurrected, Satan is like, oh, you can't do that. He sinned and, he, and, and the penalty, the cost, the consequence of sin is death. He's mine. It's over. That's what you said in the garden, right? So there's a controversy, a contention. Apparently the contention is won by God because Moses is in heaven. Now here's the third evidence of that, the transfiguration. Jesus took three of his disciples. They went up into the mountain. And while they're in the mountain, 
Two people come down. Who are those two people? Moses and Elijah. Now this transfiguration happens within reach, close reach, of this weekend, the Passion Weekend. It's not the week before, but it's, in, in, it's kind of reachable from, from that. Why is there a conversation on top of a mountain with Jesus, Elijah, and Moses? Why is there that conversation? Okay. So representation of... Okay, yes. Okay. Okay, so Moses represents those who died and be resurrected. Enoch, those who didn't die and went to heaven. Okay, good. Anyone else? What, why does this matter? Okay. How important it is to them. Right, because Moses and Elijah are in heaven, you might say, and the word slipped my mind again, but provisionally. It's a provisional presence in heaven, right? There's a couple of things that I think are worth mentioning. One is, besides that, um, that Jesus needs encouragement to face his darkest hour. Now, who better than to offer encouragement? An angel could come down, right? Does an angel really know what he's about to go through? Does an angel know anything of what he's been through? They've seen it. They're witnesses to it, but not experiential witnesses. And so Moses and Elijah offer this window of insight and hope. They are in heaven. They they survived the struggle, in other words. So they have the ability to sympathetically encourage Jesus from an an identifying and experiential perspective. They know the hard road. Not the same road, but a comparatively difficult road. They know what it's like to face temptation. They know what it's like to be on the brink of giving up. They know what it's like to be hounded by satanic forces. So they can, in that sense, offer encouragement to Jesus on the mountain. But there's another important reason. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Jesus' resurrection being a first fruits event. First fruits, for those of you not familiar with it, was a harvest celebration in the, the Hebrew calendar. And as the harvest was ripening, they would cut the first ripe fruit from that harvest. And they would celebrate in anticipation of a coming abundant harvest. And so Paul applies this to Jesus. And here's the deal. Enoch, I'm sorry, Elijah, Enoch too, but in this case, Elijah and Moses are in heaven provisionally. And so part of that conversation, part of that encounter is this sense that helping Jesus to recognize what his death will accomplish, that they are evidence of what his successful life, death, and resurrection 
achieves. Because they're provisional. It's actually Christ's resurrection that has secured their presence in heaven and especially Moses' resurrection. It was provisionally done based on the success of Christ. That's why Christ is the first fruits. His is the undergirding argument for why resurrection can happen, period. And so Jesus on the mountain is talking with Moses and Elijah, and they are encouraging him to hang on. I want you to go with me to the book of Revelation. This is Revelation, and that would be the first one, Revelation chapter 1. Just about a page over probably. Revelation 1 finds Jesus showing up to John. John is on Patmos and Jesus shows up there. Beautiful description of Jesus, which we won't read, but he is there. And so that's, if you want to read that description sometime, Revelation 1, 12 through 16. But then we get to 17. And what's interesting is how Jesus introduces himself. Revelation 1, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, so here's Jesus. John has turned around and just boom. And then Jesus reaches down, touches him, and notice the introduction. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And then he just continues on with instructions. And I note that because Jesus' preferred introduction involved what specific event? What specific event? Jesus' introduction of himself referenced what specific event? His resurrection, that's right. I I asked myself, okay, it's a dumb question, but sometimes it's helpful to ask dumb questions when you're studying the Bible. And that question was, why does the resurrection matter? Why did it matter to the disciples? Why did Jesus in the, well, I point it there. It was back here for a minute. Why did Jesus use the introduction as the primary way of referencing himself to John? Because resurrection is written all over the biblical story. Resurrection is required for the biblical story to be a story of hope. 1 Corinthians 15, we are of all men most miserable. Paul says, if Christ hasn't raised. If, If this resurrection thing is just a story, just a fairy tale, just a, a tradition, then we're, we're miserable. Yeah. We might as well live it up. When the disciples met with Jesus post-resurrection, he specifically told them, you are my witnesses of these things. If you look in the book of Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happens chapter 1, rolls over into chapter 2. That Sunday morning, 
as the people are hearing the apostles speak in all kinds of languages, there's a commotion, a stir. People start arguing about what this is. They're, they're drunk. This is a miracle of God. Peter calms the crowd and preaches a sermon. Do you know the content of that sermon? Just take a wild guess. Resurrection. The next day, or the, or the next story in the chapter is about healing a man outside the temple. Peter says, I don't have silver and gold. He's out there begging. I can't give that to you. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And it's that song. I'm not going to sing it, but the leaping and jumping and celebrating song because he could walk. And then there's another sermon by Peter, and guess what he preached about? The resurrection. Why are you so surprised this happened? The resurrected Jesus is the reason this man can walk. See, the biblical story is infused with resurrection being this, this shift point in human history. The, by the way, here's a cool thing that came up in, in the 9 o'clock church in one of the comments. Moses represents kind of the, in a, in a human sense, the, the Exodus story, the Israel story, the founding of the nation story. And then Elijah represents the prophetic narrative. And those combined anticipated the coming of Jesus. Right? Jesus is the third piece of that story. The promise, you might say, represented by Moses, that whole sanctuary system that foretold Christ's coming. And then the prophetic ministry of the prophets. That realization of that dream now hinges on the shoulders of of Jesus. You remember Jesus walking from, down from, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. He expounded to the disciples from the books how this was the place it had to come and that he would resurrect. So now we got to go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> And uh, I'll start in chapter 1, if you want to, verse 5, verse 1, 5, verse 1. I'll start summarizing it. There's a seat, a throne, I shouldn't say a seat, there's a throne. And on the throne, there's someone sitting. And in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne is a scroll written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. You can see it there. Now verse 2. And I saw in the right hand of him, let's see, then a, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? So while the chapter doesn't tell us what's on the scroll, you're going to find out as, the, as this thing un, uh, continues, it's a pretty big deal. Apparently has to do with human history future, kind of the outcome of this thing. Notice John's response. We're going to read the last verse that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. Really important scroll, but completely inaccessible. No one, anywhere. John is so distressed, he must have crashed. 
John is so distressed that the Bible says in verse 6, verse 4, verse 4, that he weeps loudly. Like he's, these are heartbroken sobs. It's not a whimper. It's not a tear trickling down the cheek. He is heaving with sobs because nobody's found. The implication is that it has serious ramifications for human history, for the outcome of human history. It's almost like you have Moses and Elijah and then no Jesus. That whole thing crumbles and falls. Nothing. All of the prophetic aspirations, heap of ruins. And John has that sense of great calamity. But then, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, and call it out if you have it. Do not weep. Stop weeping. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. I want you to notice something really important. <coughs> the text says that this lion of Judah, this root of David, has done something. He's prevailed, won the victory, or conquered. There's been a struggle and a victory. What do you think? Just wild guess. John's referring to here. Or the, the, is it the elder, the elder. What do you think the elder's referring to here? And we know that because of the next verse. Verse 6. By the way, A.V. doesn't get thanked enough the scramble you're doing to put the text on the screen, thank you. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having, so let's just stop for a minute. Stood a, la a lamb as though it had been slain. What's that language? It had been slain. But it's standing there so it's no longer slain. Verse 5 tells us that that lamb had conquered, had prevailed, right? Now, Jesus could have been introduced in any way. Why doesn't John see the, the glowing Christ of chapter 1 standing here? Because God is conveying to John that the future, human future, the victory rests on the shoulders of a dying and then resurrected Jesus. That the resurrection is essential. Remember, the verses before said that, who, who is it? Who is it? There's a scroll needs open. Anybody, anybody, anybody. No one. Anywhere, not in heaven, not on earth, not even under the sea. They looked everywhere. There was no one anywhere who had prevailed and could open the scroll. And so then we're introduced that Jesus in his death and resurrection qualifies to open the scroll. Our human future rests soundly on the success of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. Remember, Lucifer thought he had, a, he had a monopoly on death. Adam, and then there's that struggle, Moses. 
So then there's this provisional thing with Moses and of course Enoch and Elijah and then there's the widow of Nain and there's Lazarus. Of course Lazarus didn't go to heaven right away. But anyway, there's this provisional ascensions, resurrections and ascensions. There's provisional stuff that happens. But the scroll is still locked up until the resurrected lamb shows up. By the way, this wounded language also implies that there's evidence of Christ's death post-resurrection. Because he says, what is it? A lamb as though it had been slain. Past tense. Having seven anyway, continues. So apparently, it's unmistakable that Jesus gave his life, but is also risen. And that's the one that John sees who Prevails, the one called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So now let's go to Romans chapter 6. It's our final landing spot this morning, Romans chapter 6. We're going to be down in verse 5, Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Oh, I apologize, I went too far. Roll back to verse 3. Forgive me. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? His death. Okay, so we've talked about the resurrection uh, we've talked about, well, we've talked about the power of sin. Sin is followed with shame, followed by death, right? It's challenged because Moses is resurrected, which means this whole monopoly that Lucifer thought he had isn't as rock solid as he thought it was. Jesus then comes on the scene through his life, death, and then resurrection. He breaks the power of death because he breaks not only the physical limitations of death, but he breaks the sting of death. And that sting, 1 Corinthians 15, is sin. So the resurrection, in other words, the resurrection is an incredible, um, incredible moment to give us hope for our future resurrection, right? It's an incredible hope to give us hope for our future reunification. But there is also a practical application, a practical, not application, a practical reality to the resurrection every day that you wake up. And that's where we're circling back to. It's not just future. It's not just that Jesus prevailed to secure the resurrection of, of people again to inhabit a perfect world. But Jesus' victory, even the victory implied in Revelation 5, is more than just victory over death. It's victory over the domination of sin. So Romans 6.3 says, if you're baptized, you're buried with him into his death. We were buried, therefore, verse 4, with him by baptism into death in order that, now listen, just as Christ was what? Raised from what? The dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk how? In 
newness of life. So this resurrection now, it's not just about human history being able to wrap up with hope. It's not just about us being able to wipe tears at, at funeral services. This hope is about us being able to wake up in the morning and face our darkest secrets and not have to keel over in shame and guilt and hopelessness. And it's not about God just offering us a leg up. It's not about God just offering us a pep talk. It's not about God just giving us a little nudge forward. It's about resurrection power. It's about believers because Jesus is resurrected. It's about you and I having access to the kind of power that can bust through death. Do you get what I'm saying? In other words, this resurrection thing is a big deal. This resurrection tells me that the power available to walk in newness of life, to not lose my temper, to not whatever it is that you wrestle with. In other words, the power available to love people. We talk about love God, love people, right? That's the thing we want to do around here. The power to do that is, Paul says, demonstrated in the resurrection. The power for us to give ourselves away in service. The power of us to live with kindness and goodness toward those around us. The power for us to rise above our brokenness isn't that we have power to rise above it. It's that He has broken. Broken death. Broken the sting of death. And that kind of resurrection power is ours by faith. That kind of new life. What do you think about that? Is that a little bit of hope? Maybe a lot of hope? Maybe, I mean, have you ever seen a dead person raised? Sometimes we talk about this stuff and it just kind of goes over our heads. Have you ever seen a dead person raised? It's kind of almost humorous. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul goes on and on about the, that the, um, that dealing with this thing. Well, what's the person like when they're raised? They're not the same. It's not the same person that went to the grave. It's not like rejuvenated you. It's a whole new product. All, it's, it's you 2.0, the best physically, mentally, emotionally. So it's still you, but Paul's like, no, it's not you reconstituted. It's a whole new you. It's, you have to read it, First Corinthians 15. Kind of, it's a little convoluted, but have you ever seen that? That kind of, I've never seen a resurrection. But can you imagine thinking as you get up in the morning, facing your day, knowing that you're going to face trouble, maybe knowing already what that trouble is going to be, and knowing that the power available to you, just thinking from what today, Jesus resurrected. I mean, just remember that the past tense. I remember today, the resurrection of Jesus is a fact of reality. That means today, I have all the power I need to walk through whatever fire, whatever challenge, whatever stuff may face me. That kind of power is available to me today. That's what the resurrection means when it comes down to daily life. It means power. Power to love like Jesus loves. We hope you were blessed by today's message. For more content or to connect with us, visit us online at brunswickadventist.church.